This is More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is made up of more than your job title. Each week, I'll talk to a guest about how they discovered that for themselves. You'll hear about what they did, what they're doing, and who they are. I'm your host, Rabia. I work in IT, perform stand-up comedy, write, volunteer, and, of course, podcast. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to More Than Work this week. And my guest is Stefania Lakari. She's an actor, comedian, producer, and medical doctor, which is not a combo that I usually hear about. So uh, we'll talk about that. Thanks for being on More Than Work. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to chat with you. We've been following each other on Instagram for quite a while. I almost saw your show at Edinburgh. I'm going to see it in a month. So I'm really glad we're finally able to connect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for almost seeing the show. I think that's, that's a good step <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Easing into it. So where am I talking to you um, from today? I'm in London. That's where I live. I'm based in London. Awesome. So same. So we're we're talking to each other from very close by, but not exactly in the same room, which is, I guess, probably safe with all the flus going around <laughs> anyway. You know. Exactly. <laughs> First of all, I mean, we like I said, we connected on Instagram. I think it might have been, or on, and on Twitter and stuff, and it might have been just during Edinburgh. Like I was just checking out who seemed cool to go see, and you were one of the people. And and then there was like Luca Cupani's also uh, Italian comedian, and then there was a bunch of other people, but. Um, I guess, how, first of all, was Edinburgh for you? I mean, it was a while ago, but that was an interesting experience as someone who had never been there before. And I didn't have a show, but you did. So how was that experience Well, it was my you? first time in Edinburgh as a performer. It doesn't feel it was a long time ago. It feels like, <laughs> I don't want to say I'm still traumatized, but <laughs> in a way, it was a week <laughs> ago. So I'm just uh, <laughs> still recovering. I'd say it was one of the most challenging experiences ever, but also without sounding too cheesy, was probably one of the best ones ever, ever, at so many levels. I absolutely, immediately fell in love with it. The vibes were fantastic. And I, and for me, every day it was like, I can't believe my luck of being here. It's amazing. Like, be surrounded by all the people that I know, that I like, that I worked with, that I aspire to work with. It was like we were in some kind of magical, I don't know, Harry Potter movie where the entire Edinburgh, it was just a big mm-hmm. artistic campus and we were just seeing each other and hanging out with each other. It's just, it was phenomenal. So yes, very tiring, very exhausting. I sold my soul for flying like a mad woman day for hours and hours but absolutely really rewarding and satisfying so yeah deep in my heart I really look forward to the next one yeah well and the flyering thing is funny so people don't know what flyering is Mm because a lot of people aren't in the in the industry so to speak who might listen but flyering is when you're really you have a printed flyer about your show and you're just handing it to people trying to get them to come exactly You well, you 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 can try really hard, and uh, I I think it's actually really really important part of the entire marketing and and the whole experience. So um, because I have this mindset that I need to make things likable so I can actually do properly, I realized at a very early stage that if I hated the flyering and I saw it as oh I have to do what I don't want to do, there's no way I would have done in any 
good way. So I kind of self-brainwashed and I told myself this was an incredible opportunity and it was it really was because what I realized so I I, I, I know this is going to sound really crazy to a lot of other artists that went flyering but I really enjoyed the flyering because that I used it as an opportunity to meet my audience and my potential audience so it was very mm-hmm. beautiful actually just extremely tiring and to do every day and then still have a show is exhausting but it's such a great thing and you realize how much um people already know about you or your show what you want to tell them how you come across what type of questions they ask you that you can also test some new material and jokes you learn how not to take anything personally because some people might be a little bit harsh in the way they refuse uh, a flyer, for example, and I think that's a good, um, you know, training for when you might have hecklers in the show or people working out. I was very lucky; I didn't have many. I still had possibly three. <laughs> I counted because I was like, oh, "You're working out oh, of my." Wow. Show. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, someone walking out—that's that's rough. Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, in Edinburgh, uh, also, uh, I don't know if it's just a nice, uh, soft excuse we tell each other as artists, but we'd say, oh, don't worry, there's going to be somebody walking out because the shows are so close to each other in terms of timing. So people just, you know, they, they have commitment, you know? <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's nothing about you. <laughs> but yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. I fired for a good friend of mine for about the, the week that I was there. And it was kind of, in a way, nice flying for someone else because it wasn't my name on the flyer necessarily. And I was able to say, oh, I'm just doing this for my friend. That's how much I believe in him, you know? So that was kind of nice. But um, I can imagine, like, and I thought it was fun, but I was only doing it for a week and for someone mm-hmm. else. <laughs> so, but I like your attitude around it. So I guess I, there's so much to talk to you about just because you have such a diverse background, for one thing, just being in the medical field and also being a performer and a producer and so i what came first for you at at the as far as like even education because you have gone to school for for performance and for of course for medical you don't just jump into it like you cook for comedy (laughs) can you just trying out (laughs) some new stuff for surgery (laughs) yeah you're like oh decide i have a new five I can do this in five minutes. You like <laughs> open surgery night? <laughs> well, okay. Chronologically, in terms of passion, it was acting because I wanted to be an actress when I was very little. I was five. So for a few years, around five up to 10, I was absolutely obsessed with acting. And then life took a different course. And my best second option was instead of getting to acting, getting to medicine. So I trained as a doctor. And then I moved to this country. I'm originally from Italy. And then I went to drama school. Actually, I went to two drama schools. <laughs> so then mm-hmm. I qualified as an actor. And um, I did also comedy school in uh, Paris with uh, Philippe Gaulier, comedy clown. And then I've been working uh, as an actor professionally in the last decade, basically. And I'm still working at times as a doctor. So I left the medical career as such. And I work more on a locum base. My specialty is uh, anesthetics and intensive care. So I work very much intensive care, emergency, operating theatres, stuff like that. So, yes, so that's, a, wow. <laughs> wow. that's a quick, like, CV in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that's the Cliff's Notes of your LinkedIn profile, basically. 
<laughs> first focusing on the the part of you that's in the medical field, then we'll go to the performance part. Um, a lot of artists during, you know, when COVID started, they had really nothing to fall back on. And I think some of the bravest people I know had nothing to fall back on because like I'm someone with a day job in IT. So it was actually busier for me. So did you end up going back to doing medical full time during that time? or For me, the pandemics were kind of extraordinary <laughs> phases in my life because I worked, obviously, a lot as a doctor because the requests, especially of people with a specialty of intensive care, uh, were absolutely <laughs> all over the roof uh, for obvious reasons. But in the same mm-hmm. time, I also worked quite a lot as an actress. Everything was online, obviously, but I did gigs online. I produced yeah. a web series, which won a several nominations and many awards internationally. I focused on the writing. I did, like cabaret, character comedy, stand-up gigs online. So I did an enormous amount of auditions and uh, some work, podcast interview. Now, why am I saying that is because it's not just about, oh, look at myself, how busy I was. But uh, what uh, for me was the biggest learning experience during the pandemic was how your mindset can help you to go through anything, no matter how hard it is. And I'm a strong believer that we really give ourselves the meanings of what's around us. So let's go back to the very beginning, like March 2020, the pandemic, you know, lockdown, the pandemic, mm-hmm. suddenly I can't fly to see my family in Italy. I'm completely isolated here. And I start to see people getting really sick, die. And then very quickly, I get sick as well, very quickly, some of my colleagues, doctors and nurses, get extremely sick and some die. In a matter of mm. months, my mm. mood was, oh, my God, this is a catastrophe and I don't know how to handle I'm in total panic. And then I told myself, I have two options. I can cry out and sit on a sofa until this is over or put myself together and switch completely the way I look at all of this and I seek opportunities for me and for others. Now, this sounds just a very nice motivational, cheesy message, but actually completely changed the way I approach things. And uh, I think it had a huge impact, not only in my career, because that set up <laughs> a lot of new opportunities, a lot of exposure mm-hmm. and work, but also had an impact on people around me. So I really overlapped with acting and medicine. So when I was at work, I kept my mental sanity and my, my internal strength by um, connecting to my artistic side the most in, an, in a mm-hmm. really crazy way. And that really, really, really helped me and saved me. So I tried to look for moment of lightness and, um, and a humor in every in every circumstance, no matter how dramatic the moment was. And it really helped me. And then I started sharing this with other people around me. And it really helped all the teams that were around around me, the, the nurses, the doctors, the medical students. And I, and then when I was off the, the, the hospital, I started doing a medical web series using, obviously, my kind of medical jokes. And it just felt like... Actually, actually, we can empower ourselves to find access strategies and tools that can allow us to, to, to seek opportunities. And what can I teach other people about my experience? What value 
of be a doctor or can be in the acting field and what's the value of being an actor can be while I'm in a hospital and we're trying to survive. And all those skills that are like empathy, humanity, that are in both professions, but explored in a different way because the way you learn empathy in acting is different the way you learn empathy in medicine. And I felt that there was a richness that, and a vocabulary that um, and tools so that I could like really share with the two worlds and the impact I saw around me both physically and online was so overwhelming and in such a positive way that really made me think wow actually this is a great example how something that was so dramatic like the pandemics turned out to be mm-hmm. such a, a springboard in a way such a, a life-changing moment in a a positive way by all means which had not happened and I'm not taking away the, the the drama from so many people dying even very close people even colleagues but again when we can't stop that happening what can we do internally to change ourselves and to trying to get whatever we can so somehow there is something new a growth um, life coming out of this that's been my experience during pandemic mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I, I relate in a way because I moved here right in the start of it, basically. So I'm, I officially moved in the very end of January. And then I moved into my flat the day before the lockdown. And I was sick the day lockdown started. I had a fever in which it was never confirmed COVID, but I don't know what else it would have been. And a, a lot of people asked me, you know, how was it? And, you know, oh, that's awful that you moved now and whatever. And in a way, it, I ended up doing a lot of different things and I got to, you know, do comedy online and meet people that I probably wouldn't have met (laughs) if I had been in like basements in London doing comedy. And then I did end up doing school, started the podcast and worked and I didn't miss anyone because I didn't know anyone here. So it was interesting. And I know what you mean about just kind of seeing it in a different way. And that's not to take away, like you said, from others' experiences, but I'm particularly really inspired even now by listening to you talk about this I think the mindset can apply anywhere right because outside of a pandemic we all end up facing personal issues or personal setbacks or personal times of difficulty and and the mindset uh, shift that that occurred for you I think can really apply to all those areas you know not just a pandemic yeah absolutely I mean mindset is really I don't know, more than 90% of whatever happens in your life. I suppose there's a little bit of coincidence, mm-hmm. etc. But <laughs> the rest is what we think, how we apply. I believe almost the world divides into categories. The people that see a problem and see the problem <laughs> and the people that see how to solve it, you know, an opportunity and what it is. Maybe it's, a, it's the story of the, <laughs> the glass half full, but it's a very, very simple and clear difference in the mindset and your life will change dramatically depending on which way you see that glass. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And so one more question just on the medical side, and then we'll just jump into all the art. I'm thinking about when you were talking about empathy, looking two different ways in medicine and in acting and or in arts, and then just thinking about my experience with certain physicians. And I, I see a lot of neurologists personally, and I find that their personality has been very similar in their communication styles. And 
other kind of doctors too that they almost seem to lack empathy. That's the patient point of view. I don't think that's a controversial way to put it, but whether that's true or not of the individuals themselves, but you went into some field of medicine in the anesthetics and intensive care. And I think you have to have a different way of looking at things to work with patients that are that ill, at least if intensive care over here means the same as in the US, the people are quite ill at that point. Do you know what brought you into that side of medicine? I mean, some people don't choose, maybe, I don't know, but what brought you into that? And did maybe you having the sensitivities of an artist also inform that decision to go into that part of medicine versus mm. some other part? That's a really good question. I mean, in this in a simple level, I remember when I started medical school, I was always fascinated by the so-called big stuff. <laughs> so the big emergency, the big medicine. Mm -hmm. So uh, things like intensive care and emergencies, they always full of like high adrenaline situations. And I, I always really like that. Um, also because I guess I got into medicine because I liked people <laughs> and I like I like human stories and I always I always got really interested in fact I think especially now retrospectively now that I'm mainly an actor and an artist I look back and even when I was doing only medicine the thing that always really fascinated me wasn't the science per se although it's pretty fascinating to understand how the body works but it's the humanity mm -hmm. around this it's the stories it's the relationships between the patients and the relatives the patients and the staff so I do believe maybe I always had a, a sensitivity of the of an artist in a way maybe a little bit more than a than other scientists per se. Unfortunately, I have to admit that uh, teaching empathy has never been a, really a focus in any medical school or postgraduate training mm -hmm. anywhere in any country. It's something you're kind of supposed to learn as you go. Uh, and I feel a lot of scientists are not necessarily the biggest emotional empath. So they struggle and they never pick up or do skills. I feel for me it's very, very... I mean, it's fundamental. In fact, it's most, even more important that what, uh, what you do practically, because quite often in medicine, what we do is not necessarily what makes a difference. I mean, sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's a guess what could be the best option. What ma makes a lot of difference is actually how people feel they are treated. That's absolutely crucial. And I, I always have myself... I might not be the best scientist on the planet, nor I aspire to be, but uh, well, you know, I'm very I'm very good in my in my knowledge of of course and I got a lot of experience. But for me the target is if I have a, somebody in front of me and needs my help, how can I make their life better today because of me? What can I offer that's gonna really make this experience that is very dramatic, is very catastrophic, maybe slightly better. And I think that's where empathy comes from. That's that's the beginning of looking for a humanity. When you really see another human being and you think, I want to have an impact on them, preferably saving their life and, <laughs> and get them out of the hospital safe. But also, mm -hmm. if that is not possible, which very often is not possible in intensive care, how can that experience be slightly more comfortable, more pleasant, more human. So I wish other doctors very often, they use empathy a little bit more. Quite crossed at times with some of the colleagues, they really like that. There's a lot of 
you know, excuses around, oh, too busy or no time or oh, not important or doesn't matter. And I, I yeah, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of like a really, really pause and have a human connection before anything else. Very crucial. Mm. And I hate to be a patient. Yeah. I hate it. So every time I'm patient myself, I'm like, I need that connection. I need somebody that is very sweet to me and understanding. <laughs> I know how important yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And there's some doctors who are great at it. And I have one who she called me ahead of our appointment. She's like, oh, I had time today. So I'm trying to catch up with some of my patients before they come in because I don't have time when they come in. And I thought that was really interesting, but also kind of sad that like, you go in and they don't have time for you. So she's trying to call people outside mm. of the time to catch up first. And it was a cool approach though. Cause then at least we were kind of caught up and we could just, you know, hit the ground running with like the plan <laughs> basically. Absolutely. But you see, it's very, very rarely empathy, only a question of time because yes, it's nice if you have the opportunity to have a longer chat, a deeper connection. It only takes like mm -hmm. one, uh, meaningful eye contact and you already see it in the physiology yeah. of the person around you because they do feel seen and i you know you just need mm -hmm. a few seconds if you don't have any anything more than that that's the quality of connection that matters yeah. i believe that's a good point that is Thanks for listening so far, and I'm just going to interrupt the podcast for about a minute and a half or so to tell you about a podcast that I really love. It's called Art Heals All Wounds, and it's by Pammy Zell. She works in documentary films, and basically, she's super easy to listen to and has great guests, kind of like me, right? I know that's what you're thinking. One of my favorite episodes was when she had the directors and creators of Crip Camp, this Oscar nominated film documentary film on her podcast i learned so much from them and was really entertained but basically all her guests have a story to tell art is how they express themselves the art could be what you think of as art meaning something like painting or it could be writing or filmmaking or anything else so pam's going to tell you a little bit more about our podcast and then we'll resume with this episode thank you do you want to change the world so do I. On this podcast, we meet artists whose work is doing just that. Welcome to Art Heals All Wounds. I'm your host, Pam Uzel. Each week, I interview an artist and talk about their work. As creative thinkers, artists present us with some of the most compelling visions of ways that our world could work better for everyone. Art around environmental, social, and racial justice, gender equity, ways to build community and bridge divisions, and solace for grieving. If we can see solutions to the things that prevent us from thriving as individuals and societies, we can imagine implementing those solutions. Once we imagine that, we can become the people we want to be, belonging to communities that nurture everyone, and living in societies based on equity and justice. How do we change the world? One artist at a time. I think we'll just start with Medico because that's your current project that you're doing. Talk about Medico and talk about what's going on with it this year. Thank too. you. Thank you for asking. So Medico is a solo show. 
is co-devised and directed by absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful director with Chris Head and a dear friend as well and a great mentor. It's currently under revision, so I'm going to start the new tour uh, um, next month. I'm going to have some previews in East Linton at the Hope Theatre and then uh, the premiere of the show at the Vault Festival on the 17th of February. Um, so the show started last year and it toured for a year. It's a medical comedy and now it's kind of revised. It's got some new material, some new so-called hot stuff. And so I'm really excited. It's the same concept, same structure with a lot, a lot of new stuff. It's really around me as a, as a doctor, as a foreign doctor here, but also as an actor and how you put the two things together. There's a lot to talk about immigration and without giving away too much. There's also some kind of agey stuff mm. about some episode of racism or sexism. So I want, I want to share that because, um, I find it is very empowering to be able to talk about such delicate uh, topics and upsetting topics in an artistic setting. Therefore, I'm hoping to inspire other people to voice up issues and uh, metabolize them Mm -hmm. and uh, inspire others themselves. Is it autobiographical or is it like partly autobiographical, partly you know, also just fiction. I mean, all of us with comedy, I'm, you, you do a different type of comedy than I do, but th- there's some truth to it usually. There's some premise, and then you kind of go off on, on your own and do what you want, at least for me. is it So how is it for you on that? Yes, there's a lot of truth. I mean, every single thing comes from a place of truth. For, obviously, for comedic purposes, so some of the stuff can be a little bit enlarged, modified. None of the patient stories can be traceable. Mm-hmm. The elemental truth for me is is the beginning of a, of a comedy show. Mm-hmm. And, and it really matters because I did, I did want my own voice to be heard. So, yeah, so that's a lot, a lot of truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And for you, so I mentioned you do a different kind of comedy than me, and that's because I'm more of a traditional stand-up, observational comedy, especially any listeners in America know what the American stand-up style is, really. And you're more doing, like, acting and character comedy. Well, actually, I did the character comedy, and I did a lot of clown. I'm trained in clown and comedy itself, but what the show is about as a stand-up show with theatrical elements, so there's some singing, there's a lot of act out, but uh, it's not character. It started last year initially as a character comedy in which there was a, an overlapping of a character story, still a doctor, Italian doctor mm-hmm. in England, and myself. And initially what I wanted was to leave the audience almost like on purpose confused, which what what was the truth and what was the fictional because I just mm. believe that also that's how you feel very often when you're in medical setting you're just very confused what's happening <laughs> but now growing as an artist and growing to the show I felt that I wanted to drop completely the character side of it so it's fully me doing stand-up and again the elemental truth are more clear because also I'm touching topics that are very personal and vulnerable and I I wanted to make sure I realized that and actually this time I really wanted to make sure the audience understood the truth behind that 
and not left thinking, oh, maybe that was fictional. Because again, I feel I'm touching topics that are quite delicate and uh, I don't want any confusion. Um, and again, I got some modifications uh, because it's a comedy show. <laughs> but the, the, the drive is very much a real experience. I guess the main difference, because you mentioned the observational comedy, so I'm not there, I'm not necessarily um, I'm an observation, I'm not particularly topical comedy, I'm more like my own feelings, experience and emotions, and I do a lot of act out, so that's my style on a stand-up. Yeah. Yeah, more personal narrative. I'm. I do a lot of personal narrative kind of stuff. Mm. So well, maybe we're I not so that different. <laughs> no, no. Now we're not. I mean, yeah, yeah. Now that it's kind of evolved <laughs> into being more of a traditional show, but like with the act out elements and the music, that's really cool too. It's interesting for me to hear that that you started out with one concept and way of doing it and evolved it over time. And I, I think that's what a lot of people maybe don't know or understand about any work of art that's performed is that it will evolve over time. How did you feel when you realized you wanted to go somewhere else with it and you had worked so hard on this piece in the first place? Because a lot of the Edinburgh shows and the longer shows end up taking time to do like a couple years or something. So how's that process for you? Yeah, well, in a way, it's been been quite organic because, again, the show is, before it was a character stand-up hybrid with the theater and now is stand-up hybrid with theater so in terms of like some general structure that is very still very similar because again i'm using my acting skills to experiment with big act out with music with a different type of performance than it's not a standard stand-up but it's a really good question because I remember after Edinburgh when I sat down with Chris and we were like, oh, what are we going to do with the show? Because the show worked extremely well. So it's like, oh, we're going to modify, we're going to go somewhere else. And then we decided to be ambitious and to modify some mm-hmm. parts. So there's a lot, a lot of new material, which again, is a bit scary because I thought, oh, well, the show was working very well. <laughs> but it's an evolution. And I yeah. think as an artist, you have to because it would have felt not authentic if I had stayed there just for the comfort and on knowing the show was working and I felt well I want to I want to move on because I'm moving on I'm feeling more and more willing to to share personal things before maybe I was slightly more resistant so now I want to I want to inspire more and I, and I felt because there's a lot to talk about be an immigrant be a woman and I feel like Wow, imagine if other women or other immigrants felt inspired. It's so cool to hear, just hear about that evolution, though, because you don't get to talk to people very often, like, in this part of it, where you're going to go into the next next phase. And I think, for me, one thing that I would want people to just take from this, too, is that, you know, it's okay for things to evolve and change and for you to, your relationship to change with material and then make it work for where you are mm. with it too. It, it, I think it needs to change. And I, again, a comedy show, we see a lot of successful comedy shows. Uh, we know they've been going on for like three, five years. And I, I, I bet, you know, I mm-hmm. bet they, they change though. I mean, they need to change because otherwise what's, what's the point? It's not, it's not a film that <laughs> you just keep projecting. So yeah, well, hopefully I will not regret. <laughs> 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 we'll go back to the 
No, I'm very excited. I feel it's a really stepping up in the quality of the show. And I'm excited. I'm really, I've fallen in love with the stand-up. And again, it, despite mine is not a standard stand-up, because I can't help having that acting side of me. It's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very, very much, much closer to um, to stand up, and I I love stand up. I, I think it's one of the most beautiful, witty, intelligent, and fine arts ever. So my respect for to, to all the stand up comics, including yourself. So yeah, big time. Yeah, it's fun, and I'm I I mean I'm still so so new, like three years in compared to some people, but it is really cool. And so, how did you go? How did you start stand-up? I assume that was a lot later than when you were just acting in the first place. Um, initially, I'm traditionally trained in an acting school in London. It's 15. And then I took comedy and clown with Philippe Collier. And then I, I discovered during that the passion for comedy. So up to then, I've been working in um, kind of standard plays. I even did Shakespeare, so not necessarily comedy at all. Mm. And then I did some dark comedy. And during the lockdown, actually, I started doing some online stand-up courses and really enjoyed it. Um, I started performing as a character comedy. Um, and then I evolved and evolved and I carried on. And I've been, uh, apart from the shows, I've been going around doing gigs, both like paid gigs and open mics. Um, yeah, in a way, to the standard stand-up, I'm fairly new too. It's been uh, possibly three years um, I just felt I wanted to to experiment with like how does um, an actor um, approach stand up? I feel it's it's a little bit different. So that's that's where I am in terms of experience and aspirations. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of stand up comics will end up mm. acting. You'll see that. You'll see. You know, I one that comes to mind for me is someone I absolutely adore is Mark Marin mm. in the U.S. He, he has a podcast, but he's a stand-up comedian. He came up in the comedy store and in, in New York and things like that. And then he's had his own show. Um, though it's hard to mention him, and he's going to get mentioned at least twice this season now because I'm going to do it, is Louis C.K. He was also doing stand-up comedy, and then he had a show where he's acting. And, I mean, other than his personal issues, um, talented at both and you know, you have like Robin Williams, who was acting, I guess he was at Juilliard. So that's more of an actor turned comic. And I don't know if he was ever traditional stand up, but a lot of a lot of people doing doing one to the other. But for you, you want acting to comedy. And what is that difference for you? Because in acting, you're playing a character a lot of times someone else wrote. And and in comedy, I mean, even though it doesn't seem like a lot of us are a character on stage, we have to develop some sort of personality for stage. It's a bit different yeah. than the one on sitting here talking to you right now. And so... How's that process for you, like that comedy character versus like, meaning you stand-up comedy character, not like a character character, and then like acting and how you prepare for that kind of role? By all means, I love both. So my plan is not to leave the conventional acting at all. In fact, I mm. think having a, your own stand-up experience can can bring a lot of value to when you go back other uh, on stage, on a TV set, as a character. I like, I love both. I really do. I feel um, the the stand-up on stage allows you to have your own voice expressed and heard. And that's like a, one of the biggest tick in the boxes in my life. And it's extremely empowering, especially as a woman, well, especially as a migrant. And that's an all other story. 
But yeah. also when it comes to um, acting conventionally, so play somebody else's character, um, it's beautiful because, again, that's another opportunity for you to express empathy in a different way because you need a huge amount of empathy to play somebody else. And I, I always love that process. Mm. So every time I have a character to play, Especially the more the character is far away from me, the more I focus on the similarities. And I think that has been a, another, I know I always go back to the word empathy, but there's been another big lesson in my life, how to develop empathy and a really focusing on the similarities. Mm-hmm. Once you find that connection, there is always a connection, no matter what the character is, there is always going to be a connection. Um, then you can start exploring the differences. And I found that that process of character studying fascinating and the other thing is i'm a deeply insanely love with writing and a playwright and i feel i was so blessed to have the opportunity to to have so many amazing contemporary playwrights and having the possibility to put on the scene on the stage or on a tv um something that came from the vision of somebody else i think is very beautiful um mm. so Yes, I, I want to carry on and doing both. Absolutely. That's, that's really great. After you did your formal degree in acting at a school in London, what brought you into the clowning? Because I know a couple of people who have done maybe that course. I think one person I know did that course and some did similar, but I've heard it's really, really difficult, actually. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> Okay, well, let's put it this way. Really, one of the life-changing moments in my life has been uh, going to Philippe Goyen in Paris. <laughs> I I look at him as the most human, phenomenal, extraordinary master of comedy and clown ever ever heard of. Not even just the currently existing, but ever heard of. It's phenomenal. Um, the process is extremely tough. That's the idea is to kind of break down habits and maybe preconcepts or concepts that others have put on you, which is very interesting, and then find out what is your real nature, what is what, where your community come from, and use that. So what I'm going to be always extremely grateful to Philippe is that it really allowed me to reconnect with my roots, something that at the drama school in London mm. had been a bit put aside although the training was fantastic here but in a way I felt I wasn't fully connected with my Italianity and there's no way you can be um, a great actor if you're not fully connected with yourself whatever it means and obviously be a migrant for me (laughs) my origins is going to be the one thing to connect with so Philippe really allowed me to discover that and reconnect with that so I'm extremely extremely grateful it was a really tough process (laughs) but I'm I'm still sending him blessings every day every time I'm on stage so that's always a part of me and imagine him and also send him um, thanks (laughs) and it was a bit of coincidence actually so that wasn't I mean it's gonna sound a very lame answer but there wasn't a big heart moment um there was somebody who mentioned uh, him i was a tutor at the drama school her name is christine london smith wonderful she had come across his training and she was already teaching with uh, more attention to 
what it means to teach to international students, which is something that still needs to be explored a lot in drama schools <laughs> in England. Um, she was a pioneer in that sense, very beautiful. So I really connected with her methods. And then as she mentioned Philippe Collier, and I just had a click of synchronicity inside myself. And I looked it up on a website. Two weeks later, I was in Paris. <laughs> it was really like that. And so it's one of those things I think it really was meant to happen. I took the chance and it, and it really changed the way I approached art. Um, what is really beautiful about him is also everything in acting starts from an incredible love for the audience. And um, you see, when you teach mm. conventional acting, when you learn a conventional acting, there is very often this concept of the fourth wall, which means basically you have a, a separation, so a wall, a literally, uh, well, a metaphorical wall between you yeah. and the audience. What Philippe really taught us is about having that audience always connected with you. Of course, in some place, because of the nature of what they are, you don't interact with the audience. So it doesn't mean necessarily interact with the audience, but it means about having that connection and acting for the love of the audience. And I think that that, that is so beautiful. Mm. And I'm... And I really, I really felt that connected with me, that concept. And, um, and I remember being in Edinburgh and having this constant sense of gratitude, even when maybe the, the show wasn't the greatest itself that particular day. But I always felt I'm so grateful that people are here. I'm so grateful they're listening. I'm so, I had this incredible gratitude and love. And for me, audiences as concept. Is, is a sacred concept. Um, so yes, it's something that I, I really give the merit to the credit to Philippe for teaching us that, that humanity and that desire to, to express the love for the audience. Yeah, that's, that's something that also I think just as a mindset thing that you're really mastering by practicing it all the time and, and every performance. And yeah, it's a lot of times the audience becomes the enemy somehow like well they're not reacting to us but then that's not expressing gratitude for them that's mm. really just kind of you're performing for people that you kind of are expressing that you don't really like very much which is kind of interesting you know so the way you're looking at it is really a a nice mm. way and if if we do think that what we give is what we get then you know the reception should be a little bit better than and the people going, oh, the audience is terrible. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in my concept, the audience is never, 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 never the enemy. Even in the worst actors I had, um, somehow, I, I, I don't know. I always, I always feel maybe for me it's more like a concept. The stage is a sacred environment. Everything around it. So I feel. A, to be an actor, you, you have to have that humanity. When you are a solo performer in particular, um, so when you, when you are in an ensemble, then your connection, so your humanity is with the other actors. But when you are solo, your other actors is the audience. And you do not mm. treat as enemies your actors in an ensemble. So why would you treat as um, enemies um, your audience? And even if they don't respond the way you would like to respond, I I learned that that judgment doesn't make any sense because, first of all, 
what does it mean that they respond how I would like them to respond? Um, people have a different way of responding. Sometimes they you might misjudge the way they're responding because you have preconcept. So I... You know, I'm very dubious of when people say, oh, you have to know exactly how you want the audience to feel. Because I'm like, really? Well, actually, that's a bit patronizing because audiences, they're very yeah. clever. They're very smart. I don't want to outsmart them. I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to tell myself how I want them to feel. I have a product. I'm offering my products with all, you know, my best efforts. And then... It's up to them to feel what they want to feel. And whatever they offer me back, I need to be ready as an artist to accept it without the judgment, without saying, no, actually, mm -hmm. I want you something else. No, I may I might want something else from my own performance. But the audience, uh, yeah, I, I look at them as a sacred. Yeah, um, I really hope I'm going to keep this forever because <laughs> I think it's a good place to be in relationship with, <laughs> with the audience. Um, so yes, it, uh, it's, it's, it's a very important because I find sometimes some actors that they, they're trying to outsmart them and I think they know better. Um, they get angry with the audience. I was like, no, why? Why? Yeah, you, you see that quite a bit actually. Like, it's interesting. So, one thing you've mentioned in a few places, and I want to get into it a little bit with you, is the side of this that comes from you being a woman in two fields that I think women are still trying to find their way in, which is like medical and comedy and acting, but then also as an immigrant to this country. Now I'm an immigrant too, but I have a very different experience based on even, you know, English was my first language. I come from the United States. That just puts you in a different position Generally, it, it's a privileged position to be in, but definitely have experienced as a woman um, some things that you've probably experienced. And we even connected. Um, you were very kind to reach out to me after I posted. I wasn't sure if I should have posted it, but I did about some catcalling incident I had that was pretty scary. And you reached out to me about that, which was really an amazing and, again, empathetic response. The way you responded to me was really kind. But looking at both as a woman and as an immigrant, what does doing this work in the arts mean to you and how how has it changed maybe how you're doing it yes that's that's a fabulous question and um and thank you for the appreciation about that time then i reached out i did really feel you so and i still feel uh, extremely sorry that it happened to you that's um they should mm. never never really happen to anybody unfortunately it really still happens a lot to women and of yeah. course, now there's going to be men say, oh, nobody happens to men as well. Yes, okay, but let's put in context. <laughs> so when we yeah. talk about sexism, we talk about women in general. The question of like quantity. Um, sometimes people say, oh, but it's equally dangerous for a man to be working late at night. Like, is it? Is it? I don't think it is. You know, it's just like when men can't see that, they just they haven't either dated enough women or they don't have sisters, don't have daughters. Because <laughs> Literally, in which world yeah. you live, if you think we have that equality in the freedom and we can walk around, move around and do stuff around. We don't. We don't. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And honestly, like, I'll just say one thing to that, too. We're not speaking about their experience. We're <laughs> speaking about ours. 
And when they speak about their experience, we don't tell them that they're not having it. But when we speak about our experience, we're told things like that. But if men experience that, then they need to tell their story. So that can change. But as women, we're telling our stories so it can change. And we don't need someone to tell us it's not our story because it is. Absolutely. Now, as we mentioned earlier, mindset, again, I think it's due to my mindset. I look at these issues that I have experienced all my life by being a woman. Um, And as you correctly mentioned, by being a migrant. So I experienced not only sexism, but also experienced racism. And um, because, I guess, my mindset, I look at all of this and I feel I'm absolutely no way in a position that I want to feel a victim of this, despite we are victims, mm-hmm. but I don't want to self-victimize. So what, what, what are the options? What can I do? What can I really do? And I feel that you can do two things. You can do your own... Uh, small and very important battles every day in your ordinary life and that's crucial and I always feel very sorry when I see other women not willing to do the little step in their battle because unfortunately ideally the society will change and should change when the men are going to make the change but we can't be here waiting for that to happen so let's you know <laughs> let's try to make the changes ourselves so in your ordinary life is the little battle that are very very crucial and then the second option is you do something big about it so either you are the judge of the supreme court in the states Ruth, or something mm-hmm. big or you make art and I feel for me, um, having the possibility to have a voice as a woman and be heard, um, it's been a really one of the most empowering thing ever. And on the top of this, be a migrant and feeling that I am uh, creating my little space in this country where there is a, a consistent group of people that recurrently want to come and see and hear my stories. I think it's been a, something that, I don't know, it just warms my heart so deeply that literally brings me to tears all the time. And I feel it's almost like a breakthrough in the generations because I'm the first migrant in entire my generations, um, definitely the first woman migrant. And I, every time I go on stage, I feel I have these lines of ancestors and my mom, my grandmothers and great-great-grandmother and uh, whatever opportunities they didn't have, I do have them now. And I have no intention to pass my life without grabbing those opportunities. And what is that opportunity is to have a voice and express it and be heard. And I think because all the victimization and the abuse and the patronization that we had over generations as women. I'm not just talking about my own family. I mean, everybody is women. And now in the contemporary world, finally things are changing. We have the opportunity to tell our stories, to inspire other women, to inspire men as well. Uh, Let's do it. And I, that's where I am in my life. That was my drive is really. No, and that's great. And it's, it's, there's a way to just use your voice. You're right. And, and do things. And 
filmmaking art. And then if and people who don't do that either, there's still ways to do things. And one thing I try to do is encourage people to find those ways like that work for them, you know, and it could just be donating to a cause. Absolutely. That you believe in. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. You know, sometimes. Yeah. And that's like an easy step or donating clothes to a place like a, a women's shelter or volunteering there, whatever. There's so many things to do that can make an impact in the way you can. And I think the way you can being the other people, but the way you Stefani are doing it is really extraordinary too. It's like exposing your story to help others. And that's, I think one reason I wanted to talk to you today was just because I see you doing that and it's really inspiring. So thank you for doing that too. vulnerable act of sharing your story. Um, even in comedy, it's very vulnerable. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so. I mean, I love comedy, and I think when you have a story that you want to share, if you manage to make it in a comedic environment, in a comedic way, it can be way more powerful. Is that you know, the, mm-hmm. um, the old say about you know tra- tragic comic that can be really touching? And I. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I I think also, just to make clear, to inspire people, you don't necessarily, as a woman, need to talk about issues that are related to women. I think any type of art is inspiring, as I said. Um, Just the fact that you make art (laughs) is inspiring. Um, I'm choosing, too, because I feel it's about time. (laughs) And I feel... I care about words so much and vocabulary. Um, Things that are set have a different impact than when they they aren't. So I think for me, it's very important. And for me, I'm a big advocate of really changing the little things, the little gestures, the little uh, vocabulary around around women. Uh, One of the things I mentioned in my show is... um, some of the patronizing undermining comments that you still get as a female doctor, like, oh, the mm. pretty doctor or the, the, the young lady. Um, it's like, well, you don't refer to male doctors like that, do you? Oh, I, I know once I, I spoke with a patient after literally saving his life and then two days later it was awake <laughs> and I said, I introduced myself. I said, I bet you don't remember because you were very unwell. And I said, like, oh, I never forget pretty faces. I'm like, Maybe you also uh, remember that I'm very intelligent and actually saved your life. <laughs> what I really said was, well, I would appreciate if you remember me for also my knowledge and my intelligence rather than just the face. Yeah. Um, but do you saw it? And it comes from everybody, patients and colleagues. And uh, the treatment of female doctors is still significantly different than the treatment of male doctors. Mm. Um, anybody talks about this? No, no. And very often, I just people would say, "Oh, but it's just a compliment." I'm like, "Well, you know, maybe call mm. me by my title and not by the pretty one." <laughs> so it, yeah. this is obviously yeah. these are these aren't the main issues. But the thing is, if we don't change the small things, how are we gonna change the biggest things? <laughs> so I'm a big advocate. Mm. How very very important to use the right vocabulary and even these things, and then sound oh they're just a little bit subtle. Well, <laughs> they they are the, the foundation, <laughs> right? Um, so yes, big passion here from my side about this stuff. <laughs> That's great. And I think, yeah, again, just using your voice in the way you can is, and, and even on the small things, and you're right, there's a, a lot of, you know, there's that whole idea that you die by a thousand cuts, but I think if you heal a thousand cuts, you can save 
things too, you know, and, and they're just all Mm -hmm. small things. So I agree. That was a lot of, I think, good wisdom there, but do you have any advice or mantra that you like to share otherwise? And I just ask people like if they have something that they like to (laughs) share with an audience. So in a moment of difficulties, I always tell myself it's possible you making this home. <laughs> and this comes from a <laughs> long-standing experience in running and I've done a lot of like races and stuff. And every time I was in a difficult situation, like I'm making home, I'm making home. It's possible, it's possible. And then I learned over the years that it's like the best mantra. It's very simple. It's possible, it's possible. So yes, here we are, that's my mantra. Hmm. Nice, cool. And then let's go with the last set of questions. So these are called the fun five. And I just ask every guest these same set of questions. So what's the oldest t-shirt you have and still wear? Um, it's a dance t-shirt. I bought like roughly 20 years ago. I still use it. Uh, one of my favorite t-shirts. I, I love dancing. I, I dance very often. I've been dancing for years. So the dance t-shirt, it says something very simple dance but now dance is, um, as a <laughs> noun dance as a verb and I always think it's very fascinating mm. because it's, it's almost like a comment <laughs> like, or dance yeah. and you know yeah dance I tell myself very often like dance just dance <laughs> cool alright and if every day was really like Groundhog's Day like during the pandemic it just seemed like for a lot of us I mean you were you had a different experience with being in the medical profession and with the acting, but for a lot of people, it was just the same thing over and over. What song would you have your alarm clock set to play every morning? <laughs> Again, I'm just a helpless uh, optimistic. My favorite song <laughs> that I play all the time, and uh, that would be the one I would have an alarm clock, is Unstoppable by Sia. Like, oh, I'm unstoppable, I'm invincible. <laughs> and I love this sentence. She says, I don't need batteries to play. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Uh, so nice. yes that would be my song cool yeah and you could dance so that's great and then coffee or tea or neither <laughs> is that even a question do you remember my nationality <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i the last i was well it sounds weird but like i had a guest from italy last year or his his background his italian origin he's he's born in england but uh he definitely had no problem saying it was coffee. Oh, totally. It's like espresso forever. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and you like it strong, right? I mean, I'm sure the coffee here to an American seems strong, but it's not. Like, go to Italy if you want yeah, stronger no, coffee, Yeah, no, no, right? absolutely. I, I always travel with my little coffee espresso machine. The, <laughs> because, <laughs> no offense, this country's got a lot of very good things, but not the coffee. <laughs> cool all right and then this is one of my favorite questions because it really just gets at who someone is in a way but can you think of a time that you laughed so hard you cried like recently or a long time ago or just something that always makes you crack up um it's actually my dog (laughs) i realized (laughs) because i got my some video my dog is in italy with my family so i got some videos of my dog which i replay very often so basically some day i might have replayed like hundreds of times and i always laugh and i always think wow if people feel it towards my jokes the way i feel towards my dog 
I'm good for the future. I'm good. It's just the funniest, the sweetest. And then I tried to analyze him. It's like, why is he so funny? Maybe I can learn something from him. <laughs> I think it's just naturally playful and is in the moment. It's not trying to be funny. Uh, maybe here, here the lesson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right, and the last one, who inspires you right now? This question is very difficult, actually, because you're talking to a motivational freak. So if you saw my library, I don't know, any possible <laughs> motivational speakers from the last 25 years. Um, so, and then if it comes to artists and comedians, I don't want to take anything away from anybody. So I'm not going to say names, but I think okay. as a category of human beings and professionals, I feel deeply inspired by professional athletes and I had uh, the mm. the opportunity to work with some of them as a, as a doctor sometimes I work in a, in a sport match and stuff lately there was a guy who got injured professional athlete and, and then I asked him I said what's your key what's the key of success for you and he said well I wake up in the morning and I tell myself it's possible I was like, okay, my quote too, oh. by the way. So I was like, oh, this is amazing. That's also my mantra. But then I mm. thought, this is so nice. right. And and just to, when you see them play and when you hear the stories and you see how they talk to themselves when they are alone, when they are with others, and you can see it's the mindset, it's the discipline, it's the passion, it's what you tell yourself. And um, I'm a big believer that it's very important to put yourself in situation when there is absolute silence. Because when there is absolutely silence around you, you can hear to your own voice. It's like your internal radio and learn what that voice tells you. And if it doesn't tell you something that is empowering, then you have to change it. Because once you have an internal voice that mm. is empowering, then really everything is possible. And you can see this with the professional athletes all the time. So I'm extremely inspired by them as a category. And I'm inspired to, to learn some of the way they are for my own good. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, that's super. And my, I'll just mention it because I think he's amazing, but I have a nephew who plays baseball and he inspires me and I'm not a very athletic person at all. I, I don't even know why I said very, I'm not an athletic person, but his dedication at 18 years old and since he was about five is amazing. And so I totally know what you mean. They just, they do it, you know, and they face difficulty almost every game or match they do some situation. So that's super. That's Thank really you. cool. All right. So how do you want people to find you and if they heard this and want to do something, what do you want them to do? Right. Next? Uh, my website, stefanialicari.com. And uh, I'm on Instagram at uh, Licari Stefania. I'm on Twitter, Stefania Licari. <laughs> my next show um, is at the Bolt Festival on the 17th of February. And uh, I've got a couple of previews on the 5th and the 6th of February at the Hope uh, Theatre in Islington. That's about it. There is any TV producer listening to this podcast? Here we go. I'm free after the 17th of February, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, and if they're listening, um, maybe give me a shout too. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Stefani. I really appreciate you doing this, and it was so thank great you, to likewise. talk to you. Thank you, likewise. Thank you for your time. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the guest and what was talked about in the show notes. Joe Mafia created the music you're listening to. You can find him on Spotify at Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. Rob Metke does all the design, for which I am so grateful. You can find him online by searching Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Please leave a review if you like the show and get in touch if you have feedback or guest ideas. The pod is on all the social channels at at More Than Work Pod or at Robbie Comedy on TikTok and the website is morethanworkpod.com. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself.